you know, I feel like I'm repeating myself, but Star Trek tends to live and breathe on its guest stars. And William Marshall does an excellent job here. He's a theatrical actor and did quite a bit of uh, theater work. In fact, got his start on Broadway. And it shows. While he does go a little bit into histrionics a bit, he nevertheless manages to do a lot of little touches that really add to his flavor and character and make him an interesting character, despite the fact that he's effectively the villain of the episode. Kind of. Um, so, a, a quick aside, by the way, this episode was written by Lawrence Wolf, who you may recognize from having done nothing else with Trek ever. Fontana was brought in to rewrite this. In fact, when she was asked about this, she was like, Oh! It's worth noting that at this point, everything was just kind of behind the scenes. Kuhn had left. Fontana was on her way out. Pevney had already gone. So this was just kind of one of those situations. Uh, this was also directed by John Meredith Lucas because, he, well, this is going to sound strange, but because it was a cheap, easy episode to do. Most of the special effects we see in the remastered version are the things that weren't really in the original, and the overwhelming majority of this is just set on the ship with the existing cast, with with the same outfits and blah blah blah. So the only thing they had to count for was the space battle shots, which if you've seen the original were not exactly impressive. One guest star and one new prop. You'll notice that's also the motivation behind making this episode. It was cheap. It was easy, and it was fast. Can I can I get real with you guys for just a second? Every year, once a year, I do what I call the floodgates. Some of you probably are aware of this. Most of you are probably aware of this by this point. I've been doing this for nine years, ten years now. Eleven years when this video goes live. Anyways, I've been doing this for a while. And as I've been doing this, I always worry. I, I, I fight against the mentality of turning into an assembly line. You know what I mean? I may get five episodes recorded in a day, and I do. But I try very hard to make sure that I'm doing the best quality of episodes that I can, regardless of that. Because it's not a quota. I don't have to do five episodes a day. I sit down, I watch an episode, I take my notes, I do my research, I got my books on my desk, I got this one right here, I got this one over here. You know, I check Memory Alpha, I check uh, the Star Trek archives, and, uh, you know, the, the web archives of... American media history, you know, all that fun stuff. Trying to get all sorts of information to discuss with you guys, just because you know, it's my job. I'm trying to do the best job I can. And I try really hard to fight against the mentality that went into the creation of this episode. And the reason I'm mentioning this is because earlier today, just today, I found myself having just a little bit of a, a small freak out, for lack of a better way to put it, about you know worrying that I was getting too assembly line that I was not putting the level of quality that I demand of myself into this, into what you're watching right now. Now, I have satisfied for myself that I am not doing that. I hope it is obvious for at least some of you. Then I watched this episode and found out about that little tidbit. And it was just like, wow, totally unintentional, a totally unintentional parallel, but also related because obviously the, the episode itself was made because it was cheap, easy, and fast. But the main thrust of the episode, too, is very much focused on the ideas of being replaced by automation. The assembly, sh the, the assembly line problem, right? <sighs> that is such a ludicrously complicated topic. I actually thought about touching on it briefly here. 
But then I realized that that would be insane. We'd be here for like three hours, and nobody wants to hear me talk about hypothetical economic possibilities that might devolve from increased automation. There's, there's just a thing there, right? But I'm going to bring it up a little bit. Just a little bit, if you'll forgive the digression. One of the things that's mentioned is that this ship can be run by one computer. That's a Constitution-class ship, and that's important to, to lay that down, because that is roughly 400 people who are not involved in the, in the running of this ship, okay? Now, I don't buy that for a millisecond, but I found myself challenging that assumption while I was going through this. So before I go any further, do you think that could be a thing? Alright, now that you have had a chance to dive to the comments section and tell me how stupid I am and how my quality is nosedived and all that other fun stuff, what I... <laughs> I'm going to get the comments. I know I am. What I want to say is that I actually agree and disagree on further analysis. What I see here is a possibility where the ship can be controlled by a singular source, but not operated by one. Let me put this in a slightly different way. I... I've... I've... I've worked around computers and video games too much to not know that there is so much you can automate. The amount of stuff that's automated in everyday function is actually insane if you think about it. I, I can't even properly explain it to you because so much of it is automated that it's become normal. Uh, simply the act of clicking something and having context-sensitive interactions, that's a program running in the background to try and interpret what you're doing versus what you want it to have, what you want to happen, you know? In short, all of that is automation that's already happening. Because if you have to do everything manually, trust me, you have to do everything manually. Have you ever seen some of the command strings for actual manual operations of programs? They are gargantuan. At least, if you, if you again, do everything manually. What usually happens is it's call this automated process, call this automated process, call this automated process, resolve, resolve, resolve in whatever order is best efficient based on the programmer. and that. But my point is, imagine if none of those processes were there. You just had to do every single step manually in the code. It's going to be huge. And that's my point. What they posit to us here in Star Trek, and this is true even in the modern era stuff, is that you need all thousand people on a galaxy-class ship because, you know, well, that that's just how that works. You can't automate that out. Yeah, you can. I do think you can. But that only controls the ship. It doesn't run it. Let me explain my distinction here. Let's say a random valve gets loose on one of the decks. What's the computer going to do about that? Oh, that's right. Nothing, because it can't. Do you see, do you see the point now? I've actually mentioned this idea as a, as a theory before. I think the majority of the, the crew here is not here for the operation, excuse me, for the running of the ship, the control of the ship. I'm using the wrong terms. For controlling the ship, because all that stuff can be automated. And to be perfectly blunt, by the modern era, we see that. There are plenty of times where a very small number of people control a very large ship and do so successfully, right? But the moment anything goes wrong, they're screwed. And that's the point. That's what the crew's there for. They're there for maintenance. They're there for operation. They're there for making sure that everything's working properly, even in ways that the computer might not detect. Let me put this another way. Nowadays, most cars have computers built into them that allow them to diagnose to figure out what's going wrong. 
I was actually at a car repair place very recently in real life from my perspective. Now, my car is old enough that I do not have that computer. One of the mechanics actually mentioned that he prefers that, and I was like, why? His response was that the computer track checks a lot of things, but if there's something wrong with the connection, if there's something wrong with the actual sensor, or if it's something that the sensor is not programmed to detect, then all they get back is a green reading. Then they need to just dig in anyways, and more modern cars are not designed to be as pull apartable as certain categories of older cars. This is, obviously doesn't apply universally, but my car is a, is a 90s car, so it is actually designed to be like I could pull that engine out myself if you gave me like 20 minutes in a wrench. And so having the people, you know, to, to continue the parallel, the, the, the car being the ship, having the people there to be like, oh, this is what's wrong, or this is going issue, or preventing it from going wrong to begin with, or updating the efficiency. You remember how many times Jordy and Data would talk about increasing the efficiency of the warp flow, or trying to make it so that the communications were better, or the sensors worked better, or whatever, right? Just little, little things that they would do, right? In short, I do think it is possible, I just don't think it's advisable. Just my take on things here. As a further addendum, God, can we get a Star Trek running a ship game that's actually good, please? Okay, it just keeps being in my head lately, how, how interesting and fascinating that would be. Moving on, moving on. It's okay, once I take over the world, I'll make some Star Trek games, I swear. And some Star Wars ones, and some StarCraft ones, and look, I got a list, okay? <clears throat> now, I hope you enjoyed that, because that's most of what I have to talk about the episode right there. But I am very curious of your thoughts. Because I'm speaking mostly from a hypothetical. I don't have real life... Like, I mean, yes, several members of my family have been in the Navy, but that's from like 40 years ago to uh, 60? No, that's closer to 80 years ago now. You know, I, my great-grandfather was actually in World War II on the Pacific Theater in a, in a U-boat, or not a U-boat, a... Um, oh my God, what are they called? A PT boat or P-boat? I can't remember the name of it. I can look up the sh name of the ship. I'm not going to, because I don't want to give you guys a hint as to what, what it was. But it was a <laughs> boat that actually sank while he was on board. He did obviously live, since, you know, that was a while ago. I'm getting off topic. Even though I have a decent amount of family that's been in the Navy, most of that is either older ships or I don't really have a lot of information on how things have started working since computers got involved in the operations of the Navy. In short, I could be completely off base here. Maybe you absolutely need people to run a ship. Maybe you absolutely don't. I don't know. And that's why I'm opening up the floor to you guys. Because I, I find this topic actually very fascinating from a world-building perspective. Because this is the kind of thing you'd figure would be very important to come up with when it comes to a world-building perspective. Yeah, I mean, sci-fi loves its big ships, right? Star Destroyer and Borg Cube and the battle star and you know the, the carrier and all that fun stuff right we, we love it it's cool but there's always this automatic assumption that there needs to be thousands of people on those ships is that actually necessary i don't know this is something i think i'm going to study when it comes to developing my own setting further because i think this is something that needs an answer you know either way Let's talk about the episode proper. So they're going to have war games in a Constitution-class heavy cruiser because they're morons. This is your first live test, right? Put this in a frickin' freighter. We actually destroy an automated robot freighter earlier, remember? 
For no reason, by the way. You notice they never explain why they go after the robotic freighter. Not once. It's just a malfunction. So here's the control number. I actually already mentioned this. This is that the topic I already mentioned. And Kirk is losing his ship. No! Just like in this side of paradise. No! Okay. All joking aside, I actually really like... Like, I'm not super fond of this episode, but there's two big things that really elevate it. One is a scene very early on. I'm trying to think of... Daystrom. There we go. I'm just trying to think of the, the character name. I was going to say William Marshall. He's the guy who plays Daystrom. Daystrom says, you know, maybe you're just concerned about losing the prestige and ceremony of being a captain. And he, he basically attacks uh, Kirk verbally over this whole thing. He also does... God, he does so many subtle, quiet little things with his acting. There's a bit where he pauses, where he's he's actually hungry for praise Everything, every time anything goes right. And he gets really defensive. And there's moments where he actually just has a moment where he visibly has to collect himself. And he'll usually just look down for a second and then come up with the response. You can see through his acting how close he is to actually having a mental breakdown, which he does by the end of the episode. He actually has a psychotic breakdown by the end of the episode. But the build-up to that is brilliantly acted. I absolutely love his presentation of Daystromir. I really do. So, you know, okay, so he's like, oh, you, you just want the prestige and ceremony. Then Kirk, by the way, the second reason I really love this, uh, this episode is William Marshall's acting. That, that's the point number two. Kirk questions with McCoy. He doubts himself. He hesitates. Am I that petty, he asks. Am I someone who needs that prestige and ceremony? Am, am I someone who just, I mean, I could do other things. What's wrong with me? Am I just afraid of losing my job to this computer? That scene is brilliant. And it shows that, that, that weaker, vulnerable side of Kirk that I think is mandatory for Kirk as a character that really helps make him something other than just the captain, but nuances him out into being a person. And McCoy's response to that is actually, honestly, my own as well. If you are at the point where you can ask of yourself, you know, am I just in this for the petty, petty reasons and personal prestige and pride, then you probably aren't. The fact that you're self-questioning is a good sign. And I agree, that is a good sign that Kirk is doing that. It's, it's an awesome, awesome scene. So then we see M5, and we see the, the, the crew landing thing. There's a nice little tidbit here. M5 assigns a landing party, and Kirk questions it. Now, what I love about this is Kirk is, is actually a good captain. It's demonstrated here. Check this out. He assigns a landing party including a, a, a biologist we never heard of. The M5 assigns an ensign. Kirk's response is, well, that ensign's straight out of the academy. He has no real... This is his first cruise. Kirk knows that off the top of his head. Of all the many things that would be difficult about being a starship captain, the one thing I think I, in real life, could never do is knowing all of my crew that well. Like, I'm pretty good about knowing my viewers, for example, and I know a lot of people in real life, but that's still probably less than the number of people just on the Enterprise A, or the Enterprise blank, you know, this this ship, this ship. That's impressive. That's all i got to say about that. That is impressive. Either way, <clears throat> so the M5 starts turning off parts of the ship. Oh, no! Oh, Captain, I've discovered it! It's the M5! Dun, dun, dun! No, it's a fake-out. It's another one of those stupid commercial break things, because it's, oh, yeah, it's just doing that because those parts of the ship aren't being used. Okay. That's cool. That's cool. Um, would anyone like some tea? I'm going I'm to take a bit of a break here.
Because wait, oh god, the tea is poisoned! Dun, dun, dun! Poisoned with honey! You know I don't like honey. Does that demonstrate why I don't like these things? Why I feel they're so cheap? So... <laughs> Spock has this really great bit. There's some good character moments in this. Spock has this great bit where he mentions that he does not want to serve under a computer. They are excellent tools, and they, he enjoys the operation thereof, but he would never want to serve under one. You know what's funny? If I can digress for just a second. That seems to be the attitude of everyone I've ever known who is either an IT or an engineer in general. Ever. I know engineer is a really broad term, but I'm talking about like uh, programming engineers, network engineers, um, actual uh, physical construction, you know, large-scale construction working engineers, engineers who work on roadworks, because I, I have a few of those in my family, etc., etc. All of them, and the IT, which of course IT is a pretty big crowd too, pun intended. The idea of turning over control to a machine, every single one of them that I know personally would be like, no! And the funny thing is, the reason why is because all of them know how machines work. We, I'm going to go ahead and include myself in that because I'm in this group too, we know how computers operate. We know how incredibly easy it is for computers to screw up. Completely unintentionally or by just random glitch. How many times does rebooting a computer fix it? Think about that for a second. Just really process what that actually means for the operation of the system. So I love the idea that Spock, super tech guy that he is, mega genius, does not want to serve under a computer. Because that makes perfect sense. And it's funny to me even more so because this predates that effectively as a concept. Well, computers were obviously a thing back in the 60s. Not to the same extent or normalcy that they are nowadays. And yet the same attitude prevails. Interesting to think about. Then, Commodore Wesley uh, commits what I would call a massive social faux pas. No, really. What he does, does is actually out of line. I would pull that person on report for what he does. No joke. On an open channel in f to a fellow captain in front of his bridge crew. So that's an important factor. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay out all the factors here. Okay, so first of all, he just says it in front of his crew as well as in front of Kirk's, Kirk's command crew. So that's diminishing, uh, it's basically insulting and diminishing in front of the people that you need to absolutely not do that in front of. Then he gives him this ridiculous insult in such a petty and, I don't know, almost pedantic kind of a way that really understates, you know what, I'm going to fail at laying down all these points, so I'm just going to make my point. He calls Kirk useless. Now, you or I might expect that from someone in the workplace, although, well, actually, let me take that back a bit. You might or might expect that on, say, the playground or a college or maybe while you're at the grocery store or something, you know, something relatively low-key. But if you were in a professional environment and someone called you worthless, they had better be willing to back that up with some kind of factoid because that is, yeah, that is unpleasant and unkind and, frankly, rude. Even if it's actually true, that is still not the kind of thing you just say to someone's face in front of their subordinates. That is every level of unacceptable. Then you add the fact that this is a military, which just adds another layer. It's up to three layer. I'm, I'm kind of trying to count. You also add into the fact that Wesley knows Kirk and vice versa. In fact, that's one of the things Kirk gambles on towards the end, is that Wesley's a decent person. Really? 
Now, it's entirely possible that he was joking about this, but i got to be blunt. If this was a joke, it was very poorly done, in very poor taste. And what I would have done is I would have had, like, a private message from him, not the, the public dismissal thing. As I have, there's a private message where he looks down. And then Kirk looks up as he realizes what's in the message, walks out, and McCoy walks over and grabs the message. What's a Dunsley? What's, uh, what's this mean? And then Spock explains it. Dunsel, excuse me, Dunsel. And then Spock explains it. It's like, oh, yikes. By the way, in case you missed it, a Dunsel means directly and specifically a part that has no useful purpose. I admit I'm probably taking this a little bit hard because that absolutely describes me. Except for the fact that I'm not a captain. Halfway through, it kills the automated freighter. No! Thankfully, well, I get the outrage. You know, I get how upset they are. But the problem is, for all of their upsetness, um, this is kind of Starfleet's fault for putting this random, untested, live operations computer in charge of a Constitution-class heavy cruiser. Give it a frickin' freighter, for God's sakes. And don't give it real weapons. Disable those things. Physically. Take them off the ship if you have to. You can do that. <sighs> I'd like to make fun, but the Federation always does these kind of science experiments things the dumbest way possible. You ever notice that? That's true in all the eras. Hey, let's try this thing out. Okay. Oh, no, it's gone horribly wrong. And that's the dilemma of the episode. This is, of course, a dilemma. Or, excuse me, this is a threat episode. My bad. Um, this is an episode about trying to resolve the threat. It's just, in this case, the threat is the Enterprise itself, so that's neat. Although you notice that doesn't really start until halfway through. This then leads to the M5 actually killing someone. The Ensign. That's cute. Kirk appropriately gets wigged out about it, so I'll give, I'll, I'll, I'm willing to give this that this isn't quite a redshirt situation. Because they're, they are like, oh my god, this, you just that killed a member of my crew. This is ridiculous. you got to turn this thing off. And, of course, this also serves to help Daystrom's character. Because all he does is talk about how the M5 is amazing. You can't turn it off. It's perfect. It's fantastic. It's wonderful. You don't understand. He's just amazingly unreasonable about this. As we discover later, that makes perfect sense. And you can see the kind of getting a little bit worse in his eyes as he's doing this. We're not. This is about a greater purpose. We're here to save life, not to kill it. Important point. This then leads to the reveal that he patterned the M5 circuits after his own brainwaves. And if you've been paying attention to the show up to this point, given how unstable he is, that explains a lot. This is a unique form of horror. You are on something that is operating without your consent. All you can do is watch while it does things. If you're paying attention, that is a very common kind of horror because it's the mind control kind of horror, just in a different expression. You know, being a member of the Borg Collective or having someone body hop inside of you and force you to do horrible things, it's the same general idea. It's just in this case, you are now fully active on a ship that is doing these things as opposed to, you know, whatever other possibility, like, you know, within your own body kind of a thing. It's really horrible and beautifully horrific as they go after the ships and kill hundreds of people on, I believe it was the Excalibur. Or it was the no, I think it was the Excalibur because the Lexington was Wesley's ship. Chekhov has this great expression as he recites the battle, by the way. He does. It's very rare I get to credit anything to Walter Koenig and his performance in TOS, but he does a good job with this. He's, he's, as he's reciting, you can see his emotions just kind of going up and down. 
and then back up, and then and then back down again as as he recites what's happening. He's doing it mu- much more subtly than I am because he's actually a good actor. But you get the point. They can't do this. They can't attack us. They can't attack us. Kirk, you have to stop them. They'll destroy the M5. Yeah, and the other 19 people on the ship, Daystrom. This then leads to him trying to talk the M5 down. You're killing, dot, dot, dot. We're killing, murdering. As he is acknowledging and accepting responsibility for what's happening. And he basically talks himself into a complete psychotic breakdown. I wrote down this one because this is brilliant. 20 years groping to prove the things I've done before were not accidents. Seminars and lectures of rows of fools who couldn't even begin to understand my systems. Colleagues. Colleagues laughing behind my back at the boy wonder. And becoming famous, building on my work. Building on my work. And he, he just, he talks himself into a froth and Spock has to actually nerve pinch him to calm him down. This, of course, leads to Kirk talking the computer down. The final time that happens, by the way, in the series. Unless you count the V'ger thing. So, final time in TOS. He talks M5. By doing it in the most logical way possible, you have committed... He, he convinces it it has committed murder. And he, it's, it says, I have to survive at all else circumstances. But it's like, no, you, you have done this. What should be done to you because you have done this? And it commits suicide, or at least effectively commits suicide as a consequence. I like that. It's a good one. He also gives a speech, because, you know, loyalty is a thing. And then, you know, he gambles, and Wesley doesn't attack them, and they figure it out at the end. Woo! They mention they're going to send Daystrom to a rehabilitation center. You'll notice that is not the first time I or the series has brought that up. I'm starting to think they really are into the mental reprogramming in the TOS era, and the early TNG era, which is... Um, horrifying in many, many ways. Kirk then gives some unnecessary explanations, but it's it's okay. We could have a light, comedic moment between Spock and McCoy. Hundreds of people are dead. <laughs> I don't get this show sometimes. I enjoy it. I don't get it. God, I'm looking at my list of the, the skips and the, the VHSs. It's a big VHS list. Of course it is. But I, I feel like I, in the past, I really cherry-picked the hell out of TOS. And I'm, I'm not really sorry for that, but it's just interesting going through and actually covering all the episodes that I haven't seen in years and years, because why would I? Hope you've enjoyed my thoughts. Looking forward to your comments. See you around, guys.